Good morning, Valley Bible Church. Good to see you this morning, and uh, good to see you out and um, here to worship together. We're grateful for God allowing us to do that, and pray it will continue to be so. Um, as we begin, I would like us to turn to God in prayer. Would you join with me, please? Father, we worship you as the Lord of all creation. We know that you control not just the weather, but the affairs of mankind and the nations. All that is happening in our lives, all that is happening in our nation, all that is happening in the world. For that, we are grateful. Otherwise, uh, there would be despair, and all things would be happening without purpose. We thank you for your great purpose, which is your glory. We ask that your glory would be seen in the reading of the Scripture and its uh, teaching this morning, but also in our lives. In these things we pray, in Christ's name, amen. This morning is, as you just heard, the reading of the Scriptures, a sea story. A sea story this morning, and uh, since I'm an old salt, I get to uh, tell a couple of uh, sea stories this morning, so I'm excited about that part of it. Um, the story is the story of Jesus walking on the water in the Sea of Galilee. Uh, quite a recognizable story. If you were ever in Sunday school, of course, you learned the story of Jesus walking on water. Um, everyone recognizes uh, that as one of the great miracles of Jesus Christ. In fact, I think if you were even to ask someone who's not a believer or not really well-versed in the Scriptures, can you name for me a few of the... Of the miracles of Scripture, I think that many people would say, yeah, Jesus walked on water. Well, that's one that we would recognize uh, just in our culture in general. But then, of course, in, even in popular culture, the idea of walking on water, maybe one day you had a, uh, in the job where you worked, you had an end-of-year evaluation, and there was a bullet point that said, walks on water, exclamation mark. And... Uh, we, we, that's come to be known as, as someone who maybe has a messianic complex or someone who thinks that they can walk on water. But it's something that is known throughout our culture. The problem is, what does it mean? What does the miracle mean? What is the point of Jesus walking on water? And that's what we want to get to today. The story of Jesus walking on water is found in Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke omits it. Matthew and Mark have some other material that uh, John does not have. For instance, part of this story, as recorded elsewhere, is Peter um, calling out to Jesus and getting out and walking on water himself until he started to, to sink. And so, but that's not in John's account. In fact, in John's account, it's, it's very brief, it's very compact. There's no dialogue, and the only words that are spoken are these. It is I, do not fear. Those are the only words spoken in the account. It is I, do not fear. What do you think the point of the, of the passage is? From uh, John's point of view, it is these words. We happen, happen sometimes to when we study the Gospels, we, we read one story and we need to go read it in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And then we end up studying three Gospels instead of one. That's okay to do a harmony but every one of the gospel writers had a point in, in their, what they recorded. There are things that John did not record. There are things that he did record. And he had a purpose in all of them. And I think the purpose is to highlight these words of Jesus. It is I, do not fear. Now, this comes right after the feeding of the 5,000, or actually probably more like 20,000 people. It's 5,000 men, so women and children, probably as many as 20,000 and Jesus had, um, had taught them, and he had uh, fed them the fish and the loaves, and it was a dramatic miracle. In fact, to date, the feeding of the 5,000 was the most spectacular uh, miracle that he's performed. He turned the water to wine, and probably his disciples and his mother might have been the only ones who actually saw that. Um, we, we remember that he healed the official son, and that was a miracle that he did from afar. He healed the man by, by the pool of Bethesda, and we don't think that there were very many people there. It was found out by others. He did other signs that we're not aware of, but this 
20,000 people see this miracle of being fed from the, the, the fish and the loaves. This was spectacular, and it was public, very, very public. And the purpose of the miracles, we know from the book of John, in John 20, these signs, these miracles were, were written so that those who saw them or those who read them would believe that he is divine, that he is the Son of God, and that by believing in his name, you will have life eternal. Now, just before the feeding of the, the five or 20,000, however you want to put it, the 5,000 or so, um, just before that, he was teaching this long discourse of the Jews. And remember, the point of that was he was making himself out to be equal with the Father. If you see the Father, you see me. If you believe in the Father, you believe in the Son. If you believe in the Son, you believe in the Father. He does nothing on his own initiative. Everything that he does, he does in tandem and in joint process with his Father. And the whole point was that he is the divine Son of God. Feeds the 5,000 after talking about him being the divine Son of God. The purpose of the signs is that people would believe that. But as Chris noted last week, the end of the feeding of the 5,000 ends on a down note. It's kind of depressing. There's this excitement and the people want to make him king. And he sends them away. And he goes up on the mountain. It's kind of depressing. So what we're going to look at this morning is... We're going to see the way the Lord works with his disciples in this context. And in so doing, we're going to see how the Lord works in our lives as well. And so our first point is this, <clears throat> that sometimes the Lord seems distant to us, doesn't he? There are times in your life where he has been very present, and it's a wonderful time, and it is sweet, and you know that he's right there, and you believe it, and you experience it. And there are other times where you're just dry. It seems like God has taken a step back, and he's not really present with you or around. That is really what is happening here. Jesus is distancing himself from the crowds and even his disciples. But he's got a purpose in it. In verses 15 through 17, verse 15 is a, is a hinge verse from the, the, the feeding of the 5,000 to the walking on water. And remember, it says this, So Jesus, perceiving that they were intending to come and take him by force to make him king. Remember, the Passover was near, and all of these crowds were going to be going down to Jerusalem, and here's the, they want to shake free of Roman rule, and they got this guy who did this incredible public miracle that 20,000 people saw. He's got to be the king. Let's take him to Jerusalem, put him on the throne. But he withdrew. He withdrew to the mountain by himself alone. He didn't take his disciples with him. He went away by himself Verses 16 and 17, now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. He goes up the mountain, and you see the, the contrast? They go down to the sea. Sea of Galilee, 700 feet below sea level. And after getting into a boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark. And Jesus had not yet come to them. There must have been some communication. Go ahead, I'll meet you later. Maybe it was indistinct. Maybe it wasn't exactly uh, detailed. But the disciple, Jesus goes up on the mountain. The disciples go down to the sea. It's dark. It's evening. They get into a boat. They're going to cross all the way, the eight miles across the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is not with them but he knows what he's doing. You know, there's this fervor that is going on, this messianic fervor, where they want to make him king. And, uh, uh, of course, uh, just they, they thought that John the Baptist might be the king. 
they know that the scriptures tell us that the fullness of time had come. There might have been something in the air. They just know that God is working in some way. And they see this, this uh, rabbi who's doing these miracles. He must be the king. And you would think it would be an opportune time for Jesus to, to grab hold of that. And his disciples as well. And yet Jesus shuns that. He retreats from this self-promotion and he withdraws from his disciples. I think we need to understand that there is temptation in this for Jesus. We tend to think of the, the temptation of Jesus during the 40 days that he was out in the wilderness and the, the, the devil came to him and then uh, he resisted temptation and the devil left him, left him and then we forget he was probably dogged his entire life of ministry with the enemy, constantly trying to get him to deny the Father and to take a shortcut. And this would have been a shortcut. Look, everybody says, and everybody recognizes you can be king, so let's just do that now. Why go through all this other garbage? But Jesus knows there is no kingdom without the cross. There is no making him king without the suffering. He knows what his father is going through, but that does not mean he wasn't tempted, just like we are, with, yet without sin. And how might the people have felt? Oh, he sent us away. And the disciples, they probably felt the same as the people they, we know from the rest of the, the Gospels that they, they don't understand what's going on. They don't understand crucifixion and death and resurrection yet. All they know is this is the Messiah. He's the, we think he's the Messiah, and uh, the, the crowds want to make him king, and we do too. Let's do that, Jesus. And he says, now nah, go, go on. Go away. They must have been dejected themselves and dispirited, just like the people were. And so Jesus goes up to the mountain by himself alone. This was not, by the way, Jesus wanting a little me time or a little alone time. You know, I just need to get away and get away from people. No, he needed to reconnect with his father because I believe this was a great temptation. This was probably the height of his popularity. And so for the disciples, they're wondering, what? What are you doing? You missed an opportunity. And the lessons for us are these. When the Lord seems distant, understand that your faith is being tested. Jesus knew what the crowds were going through. He knew what they felt. He knew what they needed. He knew what his disciples were going through. He knew what they felt. He knew what they needed. And you know what he did? He took a step away. He knew what he was going to do. He intended to send them out on the lake by themselves. That was his purpose. Why? To test their faith. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect, complete, and lacking in nothing. When you face trials, God is testing your faith that it would grow stronger and that you would become mature. And this is the, the avenue, the pathway of growth. growth. Sometimes it is gross. It's not easy. It's difficult. For those who are younger, if you are in grade school or middle school or high school or even college or young married, you may not even understand this yet. Life is difficult. It is not going to be easy. And God uses difficulties to grow you. In fact, those of you who are older, like me, you look back and when did you grow? When did you learn the most? When God was present and answered all your prayers? Not likely. You grow the most when he takes a step aside and he says, I'm going to let you learn what faith is all about. It's a test. But you need to know that. 
You need to know the purpose. Instead, we forget that. And it's a simple truth of the Christian life that we must not forget. Second of all, when the Lord seems distant, follow Jesus' example to draw near. Follow Jesus' example to draw near to the Father. The disciples were most likely disappointed. And you may most likely be disappointed right now. Have you ever been disappointed? Have you ever been disappointed with God? Because he did not do what you wanted him to do? Because he didn't answer your prayers the way you had asked? Because things didn't quite turn out as planned? God has purpose in that. But our, our goal is then to draw near to God when we have these questions, when we have these temptations, when we have these disappointments. That's no time to go it alone. That's the time we seek the presence of God. We draw near to him. We pour out our hearts to him. And Jesus did the very thing. It doesn't say that he went to the mountain to pray, but I'll tell you what, every time in the Gospels, I think other than this one, When Jesus goes to the mountain, he's going to pray. He's going to connect with the Father. The disciples had had a mountaintop experience. They were up there, the heights of this incredible miracle, 20,000 people fed. And Jesus says, "Ah, never mind, go away. And they go to the depths of this lake in He's going to send a storm, and the storm is going to test them. The way the, the, this portion ends is this. They get in the boat. They start for the other side. It's dark, and Jesus is not there. Life is that way sometimes. We're heading out on a difficult journey. Something comes up. It's dark. And he doesn't seem to be there. But that's when we draw near to him because when we say um, sometimes God seems to be distant, the word seems is operative, isn't it? it it's, it's our perception. We'll find out later he is there all the time. But it just seems by what he is doing, that he is not present, but we will see that he is. So, sometimes God seems to be distant, and sometimes things go from bad to worse. And they do for the disciples. They go from bad to worse. It's dark. They're tired. It's been a long day. They go down to the depths of the sea, from the heights of the mountaintop, waiting for Jesus, he's not there, we're going to start out to the other side, and that's when the real difficulties begin. And life is that way for us too sometimes. We think it's bad, and then tomorrow comes. We think it's bad the next day, and it only goes from bad to worse. We've all been there, you have been there, maybe you are there right now. We are there right now in our nation, aren't we? To think about where we would have been three months ago, four months ago, Three weeks ago, things have gone from bad to worse. But the lights come on and the lights go off. (laughs) Couldn't resist. Good timing back up there. So the text says this in verses 18 and 19. The sea began to be stirred up because of a strong wind was blowing. Very emphatic a, a very, it's a mega, that's the word, the word is mega. A mega wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, the, the, this part of the Sea of Galilee was, was probably eight miles wide. Even uh, Lake Coeur d'Alene and Lake Ponderay are not nearly that wide. I think they're three and four miles wide longer, of course, but to go across. And so they're probably halfway out And they saw Jesus walking on the sea, drawing near to the boat. Now he's coming near. He had pulled away, seemed distant. Now we see him in the middle of the storm. 
and he's coming near, and you would think relief. Instead, terror. You're frightened. You're terrified that he's coming near. Yeah, we, we need to understand um, the power of the sea, the power of water and the wind and the waves. Um, they are very, very powerful. Um, I, this bears repeat, repeating. I've told this before, but you know, I, w- I was a Navy chaplain, and I did two tours of active duty, and my second tour was uh, chaplain on, on board the USS Constellation, uh, an aircraft carrier. And I remember showing up, uh, at the pier in San Diego, walking up to the brow of the ship and looking at this ship from this end to this end, three football fields long, including end zones at both ends, this big steel ship at the pier, and remember thinking to myself, it floats. <laughs> this thing floats. And you know what else I would find out in a few days? It moved. It actually moves through the water quite quickly, as I found out, and quite nimbly. And then I found out, we launch airplanes off of this thing. And in the middle of the night, when the seas are fairly rough, people land these airplanes, these incredible pilots. It was, it was frightening, but it was uh, quite a sight to behold. But it was huge. You know, nearly 6,000 sailors on board this ship. It was a small city. And it it seemed so, it was like a a Cadillac ride because it was so big. But I remember a couple of days in the South China Sea in the middle of a typhoon. And that huge aircraft carrier became like a cork in a bathtub. Washed around, sloshed around. And uh, one afternoon we were doing captain's mast. Captain's mast, you've probably heard, you know what that is, is uh, in the uniform code of military justice. The captain is the judge and jury, and when someone breaks the law, they go before the captain, and then the captain puts them out on the plank, and they send them to Davy Jones' locker, right? Now, we don't do that anymore, but the tradition of the sea, and chaplains would be present, you know why? To remind the captain of justice and mercy. And oftentimes, we had opportunities to intercede on the behalf of a sailor, but but we're doing captain's mast in the middle of a typhoon, and I can, I can still see it. We had uh, people lined up, standing supposedly at attention, and there were, everybody's going back and forth like this, and back, and this huge ship, and people are just staggering over and catching themselves. And, and, and there's, there's furniture that's going back and forth too, and it's just like this is, way, this is being at sea. That's the way it is. But it's dangerous. The power of the wind and the waves is dangerous. And I think we, we need to recognize what was going on with these, these disciples in this small fishing boat in the middle of uh, the Sea of Galilee. The Sea of Galilee, like I said, 700 feet below sea level, surrounded by some mountains and warm air at the bottom. And like most lakes and reservoirs and large bodies of water that are inland, a cold front will come and displace that, that lower um, air and it, it becomes turbulent and there are wind and waves and clouds and it is dangerous. Happens today that even, you know, uh, we will hear something probably sometime this summer where um, fishermen are out, are out in a lake or a reservoir and a storm will come up and they will capsize and they will die. Happens all the time. When I was in college, I had a friend who was a returned Mormon missionary, and uh, he was a fellow trombonist like me, and we were talking about, uh, about the deity of Christ and salvation by grace through faith, and I was witnessing to him and talking to him all the time, and we were friends, even though we had differences. And I remember coming back to school one Monday morning, and someone came and said, Did you hear? Did I hear what? About John. What happened? He died on Saturday. He and a friend were out on American Falls Reservoir in southeastern Idaho on a small raft. They were both experienced uh, because they were Eagle Scouts, in fact. And a storm came up and they were capsized and they both drowned. Happens all the time. The power of the sea is horrible. It's great. And so... 
Peter and John and James and Andrew and Philip, these disciples who were out there, they had no life preservers. They had no outboard motor. They had no flotation device. Yes, Peter was an experienced uh, fisherman, and probably uh, one or two of the others would have been as well, but not all of them. And so when you look at this, put the, 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 the equation together, it's dark, there is an angry sea, high winds, they're four miles into this, straining against the wind, they are, uh, they are fatigued, it's about three o'clock in the morning, nothing good happens at three o'clock in the morning, I can assure you. What does that all equal? Their lives are in danger. Their lives are in danger. Can you imagine? The wind is in your face. There's the, the spray of the sea coming down. It's dark as can be because of the clouds and because it's in the middle of the night. The waves are sloshing into the boat. You're taking on water. You're trying to communicate with those who are with you, and Peter probably calling out orders. Philip, who's handling the kill, perhaps. I'm just making this up, but it could have been. Philip, you've got to hold steady. We're being turned north. We can't be turned around. And they can't hear each other because it's a cacophony of sound and noise. And you know what it would be like. What? I can't hear you. All of that equals fear and panic and chaos. And again, you would think, in the middle of this, Jesus comes walking on the sea, and you would think, oh, good. Instead, they're frightened. You think they were terrified before? Now they're really afraid. The text doesn't tell us why, but I think the point of the passage, Jesus being Lord, tells us, they saw his power and his glory. They didn't just, not that they didn't recognize him, but they, they had never seen him like this before. They thought that, uh, you know, uh, the fish and the loaves, that was, that was quite a, a miracle. But this, no, this is something altogether. And this is personal because it's touching them. He had a lesson for the multitude, but he wants to teach his disciples. He puts them out on the lake to teach them faith. And they're there for them for them to learn, and he gives them a front row seat of his glory. The prologue in John chapter 1, remember when we went through that, uh, it, it is all the things that are said there are played out in the rest of the book of John. And one of the things that he said was, we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten of God the Father. They saw his glory, I think, at this moment. And whenever believers see glory in the Bible, you know what that results in? Fear. Because it was a display of his power, of his sovereignty, of his lordship, of his kingship, that he was indeed the Lord. And they were frightened. If Jesus can walk on water, surely he is in charge of the wind. The disciples and the Jews, they knew that uh, God controlled the, the, the chambers of heaven with the, with the wind and the rain and the hail and the snow and the four winds of the earth. They knew that God the Father controlled those things. And when they see Jesus, it's like, oh, we had no idea. This is what we're looking at. He's walking on water. So here are some lessons for us. When things go from bad to worse, our trials are tailor-made for us. Our trials are tailor-made. When things are worse today than they were yesterday or a week ago, God knows what he's doing. He has a specific lesson for you, just like he had a specific lesson for the disciples. It was a different lesson than that of the crowds he had a lesson for the disciples. He gave them a front row seat for them to see firsthand who this Son of God is, what he's all about. He can walk on water. 
The crowd saw a miracle, but this is something far, far greater. And so when you are in the midst of a trial, and when things go from bad to, to worse, God is teaching you something that he's not teaching me or her or him. God knows exactly what each of us see. He knew what they need. He knew what the, the, the crowd needed. He knew what the disciples needed. He knows what you need. And whatever it is that you are going through right now, because you are, and every one of us are, he knows you. It is tailor-made, and it is for your good. It is. Which brings us to the second lesson. God sends the wind and the waves. They come from him. Sometimes we misinterpret what the Lord is doing. When they saw Jesus um, walking on water, they didn't understand. They missed the point to begin with. Uh, Sometimes we don't recognize the Lord's presence in the midst of the storm. We often focus on the problem when we're in trials rather than the person of God and his purpose for our lives. It's what's right here. We're in this problem and all these things. I got to do this and this and this and this. And I got to do this. We even forget to pray. Because we're, we're faced with all these things that we have to do instead of withdrawing to spend time with him and recognizing what God is doing in the midst of the problem. We miss it. All things work together for good. Those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. You know, I've said this before, I chafe when people say that that's just a band-aid verse. You know, go on quoting, all things work together for good. It's the Bible. It's God's word. It's true. Yes, it's true. We may not understand the good today or tomorrow. We may not even understand it in this life. But we believe him. And that gives us hope. And it gives us the ability to continue on and to trust in him and to learn what he wants us to do because the winds and the waves are sent by him to us. And we get too distracted. You know why? We want to be in control. How many of you are control freaks? Everybody raise your hand. <laughs> it's about everybody. We want to be control. You know what? in control. You know what God does sometimes? Kicks the props out. To demonstrate that we're, you are not in control, he is. Who's in control of what's happening in our nation right now? Feels like it's out of control, doesn't it? It seems that way. God is in control. Our nation, things are going to hell in a handbasket, right? And it's okay for me to say hell because it's a theological term and this is a church, okay? So don't, it's all right. But they literally are. There is a great titanic struggle. Just as the enemy was constantly dogging Jesus, he's always dogging us as well. Don't forget that. But there's always a, 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 a spiritual battle that is raging in your life, in this nation, in your, our community, even in our church. God trying to divide us, to discourage us. But God is in control. He sends the winds and he sends the waves. The third thing that we see, sometimes the Lord seems distant. Sometimes things go from bad to worse, but we can always trust in this. The Lord is always near. Amen? Punchline, right? This is what he's saying. It's the only spoken words. But Jesus says to them, it is I Do not fear. It is I. Do not fear. Sometimes the most profound truths are the most simplest, aren't they? These are the only words recorded by John in his account of Jesus walking on the water. No dialogue. No one else speaks. He just comes. He sees. He knows what's going on. He placed them there in the boat, in the lake, at this time, in the storm. He knows their fear and he says, it is I. Do not fear, which is a command, by the way, command mode. 
he uses the words, the Greek words, ego eimi. You've heard us talk about this this, more, this before. The New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew. But there is a, a, a Greek translation of the Old Testament called the Septuagint. Or if you're a hoity-toity scholar, you say, that, you say the Septuagint. But anyway, the Septuagint. It is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's very, very important because it teaches us many, many grammatical things and the use of words that we can understand the New Testament better. And so studying the Old Testament Greek is very important. And you know, when, Jesus, when the Lord revealed himself to Moses and uh, he said to the Lord, who shall I say sent me? He said, I am. You shall tell them, I am has sent me. So this phrase in the New Testament, Greek, ego eimi, is often the style of deity. Oftentimes the name of Yahweh, I am, is translated in the Old Testament, Greek, Septuagint, ego eimi, I am. It's the words that Jesus uses here. We know the seven I am statements I am the bread of life, I am the way, the truth, and the life, I am the, the, the great shepherd, all of those things, and he uses ego eimi. But he uses it particularly, specifically, in just a few places that are more profound. The woman at the well, remember, she said to Jesus, when the Messiah comes, I know he will lead us into all truth. And Jesus said, ego eimi, I am. At the end of uh, chapter 8, he's wrangling with the, uh, with the Pharisees. <clears throat> and he says to them, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they want to stone him. You're making yourself out to be Yahweh. You can't do that. And so here, in the middle of this storm, he comes, they're frightened, and he says, Ego eimi, I am. He is the Lord. He is near he is with them at this very moment. Some commentators uh, say, well, he's just identifying himself. Yeah, there's a hint of deity here, and he just wants them to know it's him. What? He's walking on water. The waves are submitting to him under his feet in the middle of a storm. And he says, ego eimi, he says, it is I. Certainly, he is making, no, it's not a hint, He's not playing games with them. He is declaring, I am the Lord. I am he. I am with you. Therefore, do not be afraid. He's not walking on a glassy sea. Sometimes you see this depicted when he's wa Jesus is walking on this uh, glassy sea. No. He's walking in the midst of these waves, and he's not doing this like a, on a surfboard or something. He's walking. And they recognize this is not right. Something is wrong with this picture. And they're frightened. He is giving more than a hint. He is declaring that he is indeed the Lord. And you can imagine for yourself, um, your entire focus is on rowing, struggling against the wind, and it's dark, and you're tired, and you're fearing for your life, and it's loud, and all of a sudden you see Jesus walking on the water. And it's the last thing you expect, and you think, and he says, it is I. And you're wondering, is it him? What does he mean? Is he real? Is he a phantom? Some commentators say he's just self-identifying. He wants to say something like, hey guys, it's me. Don't be afraid. Well, we thought you was a ghost. We didn't recognize you. We thought we were, you were somebody else. No, they didn't really recognize who he was, that he was the Lord. And he's with them. He's real. Jesus is really with them. He is really with us. It's not a vision. It's not a figment of their imagination. It's not a group hallucination. He is literally with them. And you know what? He is with us too. He's not with us in spirit as, you know, hey, the coach can't make the game because he had a family emergency, but he'll be with us in spirit. No, he's not with us in spirit. His spirit is with us. His spirit is in us. We 
have Christ dwelling in us and he is with us. And then the scriptures say in verse, he says in verse 20, but he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They received him into the boat. They were willing to do so. It's interesting, the last time those words were used, it was in his discourse to the Jews when he was talking about the, the testimony of the Scripture, the testimony of his signs, the testimony of the Father. And he said to the Jews, you were not willing to receive me. And now they are willing to receive him into the boat, and he is their salvation. He is their rescuer at that very moment. Interesting words in verse 21. As soon as he comes into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. I believe a second miracle. The first miracle was Jesus walking on water. The second miracle was as soon as he was in the boat, they're home. Scholars disagree on this, but I think uh, the the wording is is, uh, fairly plain. As soon as he was in the boat, poof, the storm is gone, and they're right there where they were going. They were only, remember, they were only uh, halfway there, eight miles across, three or four miles. As soon as he gets into the boat, they're there. It's a second miracle. And then their minds, of course, would have been really blown at that point. So some lessons for us. Obviously, the point of this story is that Jesus is Lord of all creation. Isn't that plain to see? He is the Lord of all creation. He is the Lord of the wind. He is the Lord of the ways. He is the Lord of life and death. He is our safety. He is our hope. He is our haven. He is our rescue. That is the God with whom we have to do. That is our Savior. That is Jesus, the resurrected one. That is who he is. He is indeed Lord of all creation. And when he says, it is I, that's all you need. That's all you need. That's all you need is Him. He declares to His disciples His Lordship, His power over nature, His presence in troubled waters, in your troubled waters, His providence in sending the wind and the waves, His providence in sending them to you, His person, uh, that is His glory, and we behold His glory And his authority to say to them and to say to you and for you to be able to obey it where he says, do not fear. You do not need to fear. Because if I am Lord, you do not need to fear anything. Second of all, Jesus is always near. He is always with us. He dwells in us. If the Spirit of God does not dwell in you, then you are none of His, it says in Romans. But we've been baptized by His Spirit, and we have drunk of His Spirit, and He has has placed us into this body together, and He lives in us. Therefore, He is always near. He is not sometimes gone and sometimes close. If He seems to be far away, it's usually our fault, not His. And even though you may feel right now that you are alone, And you're wondering what God is doing in your life. He is near. He's fully aware of your situation. He knows what you need. And faith is trusting him in the middle of the storm. Faith is trusting Christ when we cannot see the outcome. If we could see how it's going to end, where's the faith in that, right? What we do know is its purpose to grow us, to mature us, to bring glory to him. And that's enough. How it turns out, it may not turn out the way we want or the way we like. The disciples were discouraged that he wasn't made king at that moment. They needed the Lord, not a king right then. They needed him as Lord. He controls the circumstances like no one else. 
And he sometimes even puts us in that position again where we're not in control to learn that he is near. Sometimes the only way we can learn that is again when he kicks out the props from underneath us. The things that we're trusting in, trusting in our nation, trusting in our constitution, trusting in a political party or whatever it may be, we may not be able to trust any of those things for much longer. I don't know. At any rate, our trust, our hope is him in the end and in the beginning. The third lesson is because he is Lord and because he is near, we need not fear. Are you living a life of fear right now? I feel it. I feel pressure from everything going on. The virus, the lockdown, they're tightening the screws, what's going on in the nation. I I feel it. Don't you feel it? It's just bearing down on us all the time. Do not fear. He is Lord. He is here. He is near. Let him lighten the load by casting your anxiety upon him because he cares for you and me and every one of us. And the words of Jesus calms our fear. When he says, it is I, do not fear, that's enough. His words are powerful. The power of Jesus calms our fears because he's, he's uh, in control of all things. And the presence of Jesus calms our fears because he is here undeniably, really. He has promised it is real. It's not just a concept or an idea. He's with us. And therefore, we do not fear. So, Beloved, do not fear whatever you're facing, whatever we're facing together. There is no need to fear because he is Lord. Matthew 28, Matthew ends with these words. After giving the great commission, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Uh, We often quote, uh, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, etc., 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 and we, we don't give a lot of press to the last words. It's the last thing he says to his disciples at the end of Matthew. He's with us. He's given us our marching orders, and we're to go out there and make disciples. Guess who goes with us? He is with us wherever we go until he comes back, and he, he is crowned king. Until that time, he is with us. And we are to take the presence of the Lord wherever we go. When we leave here, we take him with us. And we should bring that presence into every circumstance. I I mentioned that I was a Navy chaplain. One of the things that I did on board ship was, uh, well, at all times, considered that my role was to bring the presence of God wherever I went and to ask people, where is God in this situation? Because think of it, uh, it's an amazing uh, job. The United States Navy pay, made me an officer and paid me money to tell people about God. Can you imagine wherever you work, wherever your company is, that there's somebody in your company who has a little cross on their lapel and they're getting paid by your company to talk to people about God? I don't know how much longer we'll have that in the military. I'm not confident that we will. What a fantastic job it was. And one of the things that I, that I really cherished on board that aircraft carrier was at night, we chaplains would do evening prayers. And there were three chaplains on board. There was uh, the senior chaplain was a Catholic priest. Uh, the chaplain right above me was uh, a rank above me, a lieutenant commander, a good friend of mine. We used to run together and train together. And I was a junior chaplain at that time. And, you know, everything in the military is like Alpha, Bravo, Charlie, Delta, Echo. And so the senior chaplain, you could call him the Alpha chaplain. And then the the second guy was the Bravo chaplain. And I, as the junior, would have been, I guess, the Charlie chaplain. (laughs) But what a joy to go up on the bridge the captain's on the bridge. It's dark, and you have these, these lights that nobody can see, and then they're not doing flight ops that late. And the one MC is a microphone that 
when I press that button, every sailor hears my voice in the engineering spaces, in the mess decks, in the, the birthing areas. Good evening, Constellation. This is Chaplain Orchard. And I would read a scripture and I would pray. And what an opportunity, you know, right in the middle of the ocean in an aircraft carrier to pray for these people. And one of the, uh, the passages that I would often read is from Psalm 107. And in the middle of this, it says, Those who go down to the sea in ships who do business on great waters, they have seen the works of the Lord and his wonders in the deep. For he spoke and raised up a stormy wind which lifted up the waves of the sea. They rose up to the heavens. They went down to the depths. Their soul melted away in their misery. They reeled and staggered like drunken men, and they were at their wit's end. Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he brought them out of their distress. He caused the storm to be still so that the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad because they were quiet, so he guided them to their desired haven. Let them give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness, for his wonders to the sons of men. Let them extol him also in the congregation of the people and praise him at the seat of the elders. He takes us to our desired haven. And it's our responsibility then to take him to your neighborhood, to your community, to your family, and to take the presence of God. Invariably, over the, over the months that I was there, there and the years that sailor would come to me once in a while and say something like, thanks for the prayer last night, chaps. I was on my rack. I was tired. It was my son's 10th birthday. I was feeling sorry for myself. Thanks for the prayer. It encouraged me. You can do that with your neighbors. Where you work, in your family, take the presence of God with you. And that's what communion is all about. Communion is the presence of God here right now. In 1 Corinthians, one of the things that Paul says to the church at Corinth is, we are one body. He says the bread that we eat is one bread because we are one body. How is he here with us? How is he here in this place at this time? Because he dwells in us, because he is here with us, and when we partake of the Lord's table, we are proclaiming his death until he comes, but we are also proclaiming that we are taking the presence of Jesus wherever we go to proclaim the gospel. And so, we're going to pray, and then we're going to sing one verse of this song and partake together. Father, we thank you that you are here with us as we hold this bread and this cup in our hands, you have told us and reminded us that you are Lord of all creation, that you live in our hearts by faith, that you indwell us as your body. And we pray that as we declare our salvation through the Lord's table, we would scatter to take your presence to those who need to hear it. So we thank you for the bread which represents Christ's broken body on our behalf and the blood, his life poured out that we might live. And may we live sacrificially that others would live as well. In Jesus' name, amen.